I am so excited because I teach history to high school students. <clears throat> and uh, Chris is going out of town and asked me to teach, and that means I wanted to teach on the topic that gets me the most excited out of anything in the world, and that's church history. Um, and I think church history is uh, something that some people find maybe a little bit boring, but I think it's the most exciting thing in the world, and hopefully by the end of this morning you will think so too. Um, and what's going to happen is um, over the next couple of months, about once a month, I'm going to be stepping in um, and doing a church history talk. And we're going to break it up into four time periods. So today we're starting with late antiqu antiquity. So this is the time from um, when the age of the apostles ended up until um, the Nicene Creed, which we're going to talk about this morning. Next time we're going to talk about the Middle Ages. Then we're going to talk about the Renaissance and Reformation. And then we're going to talk about the Age of Enlightenment and the modern church. So we're going to break it up. And hopefully we'll find those connections and threads that go all the way through time, that connect us as modern believers to the people of the Middle Ages and the people of the ancient world. And a little bit about my background um, on church history. I had virtually no background on church history whatsoever until I had to teach it to high school students. Then I needed to teach myself. And I grew up in a Protestant evangelical church. And my background in church history could be summed up like this. Um, there was Jesus, and then there was the apostles, and then after the apostles died, there were no Christians until about the 14th or 15th century, excuse me, 15th or 16th century, when Martin Luther was born, and then there were Christians again, okay? And I was sort of taught that there was this like 1,500 year period of nothing um, because real Christians were Protestants and apostles. And um, everything in between was just 1,500 years of heresy and misunderstanding. And uh, I want us to, as, um, as modern believers and people who participate in a vineyard church, which is an evangelical Protestant denomination, to be okay with thinking about Catholicism and also Eastern Orthodoxy as other branches of Christendom. So um, we are going to talk about Christianity in the Middle Ages, and we're going to use that term. Um, and I want us to just entertain the idea that there were people in the Middle Ages who knew Jesus. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how the church developed across the last 2,000 years. And it's a really interesting an exciting story. So today we're starting with late antiquity. And specifically, we're going to talk about the development of something called orthodox faith. Okay, And I don't mean orthodox with a big O, like Eastern Orthodoxy. I mean orthodoxy with a little O, which can be broken down into um, its roots in Greek. Ortho meaning correct, and doxa meaning opinion. Okay. In other words, orthodoxy is correct opinion. And the definition I found, ideas generally or traditionally accepted as right or true, established and approved. So my introduction to orthodoxy happened when I was nine years old. And I was raised in the church since I was a very, very little girl. But when I was nine, I had a neighbor move in down the street. She was from Texas. Her name was Laura. She was 12 years old. And when I met her, one of the first things she asked me was whether or not I was a Christian. And as a nine-year-old, I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And immediately she launched into uh, an interrogation of my faith and my beliefs. And the first question was, well, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I said, well, I guess so. Well, do you believe he was resurrected on the third day? Well, yeah. Okay. She, this, 12-year-old grand inquisitor gave me the theological shakedown. And finally, when she had assessed that all of my views were in fact correct, she could admit that I was saved. Okay? And then we were cool. Okay? We were sisters in Christ at that point. But she wasn't, allow, she wasn't going to allow herself to embrace me as such until she had 
uh, assess the quality of my nine-year-old theologies, which were, according to her, orthodox. I don't think she would have had the right words for that, but she would have called them the correct theologies. So what I do in my history class and what we're going to do this morning, so I want to make sure each of you is at least sitting next to one other person, is as I go, I'm going to throw some open-ended questions out into the group. And I do this in my history class. And I'd like you to turn to the person next to you. Maybe it's a spouse or a girlfriend or a friend or a child. And ask them the following question. And you're going to discuss together. What are some orthodox, so correct, viewpoints about Jesus, God, the Bible, um, or general things that the church believes today? What are some correct viewpoints? Okay, so just turn to the people next to you and talk for a couple of minutes, and then I'll call in a few of you to see what you can contribute. Okay, let's pause there. Can anyone think of one orthodox viewpoint about Jesus, God, or the Bible that the church believes today? Hands up. Okay, yes, the Trinity. Um, in my class, if you agree with something that someone says, you knock on your desk. We don't have desks, but you can knock on your chair or your leg. If you've heard that the Trinity is an orthodox theology or a correct theology. And yes, um, the Trinity is one of the central theologies of the Christian faith. Okay, any others? The Bible is God's word. Knock if you've heard that. Yeah, good. Anything else? Yes. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Mind blown. Okay, the Immaculate Conception. Um, someone over there <laughs> asked me, did Jesus have any of Joseph's DNA in him? Okay, well, that would be a question for our theologians, and one of those answers would be considered orthodox and one would not be. Okay, so those are some examples of correct teachings. Now, anything that does not fall into the realm of what has been sanctioned as orthodox teaching is considered automatically heresy, okay? So heresy is not, is not a, um, how we think of uh, other religions. So there's pagan um, faith systems, and there are other monotheistic faith systems, and there are polytheistic faith systems. Heresies are, are views that purport to be Christian in nature, but in fact don't fall under the realm of orthodox theologies, which are the theologies sanctioned by what we'll call the universal church. We'll get to that more in a minute. Before we talk about how orthodox theology developed, I want to throw up a, a timeline up here. So if you can see this timeline, this is the period that we will discuss today. This is, um, historians call this late antiquity. However, uh, um, other people call it the age of martyrs or the age of persecution. There are a lot of um, names that this is referred to. But it starts in around the year 30. So historians argue that sometime between the year 30 and the year 33 uh, AD, Christ was crucified and, and resurrected. And then we have the conversion of Paul. Up at the top, you'll see important political events happening. The reign of Nero begins, and that's the first major, major persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Um, between 48 and 75, the epistles, the book of Acts, and the Gospels were written. Um, between 90 and 100 AD, we see uh, books one through, uh, 1 through 3, John, and Revelation, and also the role of bishop clarified. So what is a bishop? It's an overseer of a region of churches. Um, and then we see also the reign of Trajan begins. That's another uh, time of persecution of Christians. A little bit later, the Apostolic Fathers, so these were the students of our apostles, were writing and clarifying doctrines and practices throughout the empire. Then we have this really important event where Rome got so big that it could no longer sustain itself and it, div it divided into Eastern and Western empires. Around 312 is this hugely important moment, and that's the moment that the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity. And that is the moment that a lot of historians say marks the end of the ancient world and the beginning of the medieval world, because that's the moment that the Christian faith becomes fused with the power of the state. 
and the Christian faith will never be the same again after that point. In 313, we have the Edict of Milan, and that's when Christianity was formally legalized. So to give you a little bit of an idea, Christianity was actually illegal for 300 years in Rome. So you can imagine a church living um, and growing and uh, forming during a time when it was, in fact, illegal to be a part of that faith, moving to a time when it was the official sanctioned state religion. Then we have the emergence um, of the Arian controversy, which was a huge um, disruptive heresy in the early days of the church, followed by the Council of Nicaea. And then finally, in 367, though the documents of the New Testament had been circulating the, the empire for many, many years, we have the announcement of the formal canonization of the New Testament. So um, not only was was the Christian faith illegal for its first 300 years, they didn't actually have the New Testament in its complete and ordered form as we know it today for the first 300 years of the church. And so we have to imagine the church changed a lot after the canonization of scripture and after the establishment of Christianity as a legal recognized faith system. Okay, that's just a brief timeline. One of the really important things that we um, talk about when we talk about the difference between ancient Christianity and medieval or modern Christianity is how we talk about faith in general. Now, for ancient people, and one of the things that really establishes um, the difference between an ancient faith and a medieval faith is that for ancient, for ancient people's philosophy was not relegated to the world of the mind only. For ancient peoples, to follow a philosophy was not just to believe certain ideas, but it was to allow those ideas to manifest in your being. Aristotle talked about words and ideas being the starting place for the transformation of our lives. And so when we talk about ancient Christianity, it's important that we talk about it as a philosophy. And I don't mean in the way that we think about ideas. I mean in that it was a way of life practiced. It started with ideas, but it was actually a transformative lifestyle for this early church. And to be a student of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus was not just to study and memorize Jesus' words, but it was to emulate, follow, and practice daily the teachings of Jesus. And so it, for the early church, when Jesus said, love your enemies, that wasn't an idea, that was a reality for people. When Jesus says forgive, that was not an idea, that was a directive. And people would try to emulate who Jesus was with their practices. Now I think one of the troubles for us as mo modern people, particularly modern Protestants, is that when we talk about faith in action, sometimes we get a little bit nervous that that might be bordering on something called works righteousness, or the idea that we are saved somehow by our deeds or works. And I don't think that ancient Christians thought about it in this way. It was just that for them, there was no distinction between deeds and words. If the words were in your mind, that by nature led to action, and it wasn't one or the other. And that's something that we need to get straight a little bit, is that Works righteousness um, does not mean you're, excuse me, works righteousness means you're trying to earn your salvation. Um, but faith in action is a little bit different. In fact, a whole lot different. Um, the early church, the early Christian church was seen as a way of life or a completely transformative lifestyle. Um, the names of the early church, people were called Christians. Um, the anointed, the way, was the most commonly used name. Um, and uh, uh, the Romans called it the sect of the Nazarenes. It was treated by the Romans as a cult, essentially. And some, some things that distinguished early Christianity from other faith systems at the time, Christianity was a proselytizing faith, meaning People wanted to spread the message of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire, and it was a very important part of the Christian faith 
to spread that message. The Jewish faith was not a proselytizing faith. The pagan faiths of Rome were not proselytizing faiths. Um, there were very few, in fact, faith systems in the early times that people were actively trying to spread a message. So that was a unique feature of it. Um, Christianity also did not depend on one language, culture, or geographical location for proper worship. So this is something that really distinguishes Christianity from something like, say, Islam or Judaism. Judaism is a faith very much about a nation in a specific geographical location. Same with Islam. And in fact, in Islam, it's actually um, technically illegal, um, according to the faith, to translate the Quran into any other language because Arabic is the language of God. And so to translate the Quran would be a, a bastardization of the original scriptures, but Christianity never claims to be tied to one faith, or excuse me, one culture or language or geographical location. So that was a really unique feature of it. Christianity also uniquely granted women a higher status than any other faith at the time, including Judaism and including uh, the practice of faith in the Roman Empire, the pagan faith. Initially, uh, it also had no formal centralized governing authority. So where we had the apostles, and they would try to meet together and come to a consensus and then um, deliver that consensus outward, we actually had this very decentralized church where different areas and different geographical locations were under the leadership of different people. And sometimes those people had different viewpoints and they had different cultures, and they had different languages. And so the early church was a very diverse place. And among that early church, before the canonization of the New Testament and before the, Nicene, uh, the Council of Nicaea, we'll actually see that the early church had diverse theological viewpoints about Jesus and the nature of God and the Trinity. One thing I want to point out is that as modern people, it can be tempting for us to develop a golden age mentality toward the early church, as if the early church was some sort of ideal time in history that we should recreate now. Um, in fact, that can never happen because the world is a completely different place than it was in the first and second centuries, but also the early church had a lot of problems. And so while we can talk about the virtues of the early church and the things that they did well, we also need to acknowledge that they had their problems too. And some of those problems were very, very difficult and very disruptive to, to faith in those, early, in those early years of the development of Christianity. Um, but what we can see, while there was diverse cultural and theological expression, we can see some similarities in how Christianity was practiced by the early church. And I love, I want to point out this icon here. I don't know if you can see it. This is John the Baptist, and he's um, baptizing Jesus. And this is before they discovered um, perspective in art and so he's in a river <laughs> but it looks like he's in one of those Baptist uh, uh, baptismals actually Beth um, when she was a kid was baptized in one of those things that has the clear front um, like a dunk tank anyone ever seen one of those it kind of looks like Jesus is in one of those but it's supposed to be a river and then down river there's some people or angels or something swimming around um, and a dove is uh, alighting upon him but baptism was a huge and central part of faith for the early churches. And this also included infant baptism. If parents in a home were a pagan and they converted to Christianity, everyone in the household, including the children, would be baptized. Honoring the Sabbath on the eighth day, they called it, um, which is Sunday. Now, why did they call it the eighth day? Well, I, there's a diverse interpretation on this, but one of the reasons why they called it the eighth day is um, that for Jewish people on the eighth day is when the male baby would be circumcised. Um, and so to call Sunday the eighth day is a recognition for these early Christians that um, celebrating and worshiping on a Sunday, the resurrection, is actually the replacement or fulfillment of um, circumcision, which is a, a really interesting thing to think about as, as modern people, um, this idea that we have a symbolic fulfillment of this ancient practice that's meant to uh, be a recognition of a covenant between people and God. Um, learning, scriptural study, memorization, and storytelling were a really, really important part of uh, life for these early Christians. Now, 
Most of these people were illiterate, and this was the time that predated the printing press and predated the canonization of the New Testament. So local churches might actually have a few documents in their possession. They might have some copies of the letters of Paul. They might have a copy of the Gospel of Mark, say, and that might be it. So what would happen was people would gather, and one of the learned people in the church would just read from those scriptures that they had, and they would read from the Old Testament, and people would memorize it in their minds because they couldn't read. And so early church people really did carry the word of God in their heart and mind with them always. And before the Gospels were copied and spread throughout the empire, people learned about Jesus as if he were the, the hero or protagonist in this great story. And instead of sitting down to read the Bible together as families like we might do now, little kids might sit with their parents around the fire and say, oh, Dad, tell me about the time that Jesus fed the 5,000. Mom, tell me about the time that Jesus turned water into wine. And the kids would learn these stories. And before the Gospels ever got circulated, people already knew all of these stories by word of mouth, and they would share them together. And um, they would learn about the parables this way, and they would learn about the teachings of Jesus. Um, hospitality toward outsiders was a huge and universal value of the early church. Also charity work. The main expense of the early church was feeding orphans and widows. And I read that in around the year 200, the Church of Rome um, had a list of 1,500 orphans and widows and uh, foreigners that um, they basically footed the bill for every month. So they were feeding and housing and clothing 1,500 people in their community. Um, worship was a big part of life for the early church, and that included men and women, which was unusual. Uh, and then also, they also avoided civic participation in Rome. Part of this was because of the order from Jesus, um, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, etc. But also because to participate in the civic life of Rome, you had to do things like make sacrifices to the god of Mars. That was against the Ten Commandments, and so Christians would not participate in these pagan rituals. And that was one of the things that earned them the distrust of the Roman government. I want to uh, pull up a primary source document. So this is something we do all the time in history class. We pull documents from the era, and we read what people said at that time about themselves. And this comes from Justin Martyr, who is a very, very important figure in the Roman church. And I'm just going to read it to you. Those who are persuaded and believe that the things we teach and say are true and promise that they can live accordingly, so that's that part about not just believing but also living accordingly to your beliefs, are instructed to pray and beseech God with fasting for the remission of their past sins while we pray and fast along with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and are reborn by the same manner of rebirth by which we ourselves were reborn. For they are then washed in the water in the name of God the Father and Master of all and of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. For Christ said, unless you are born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now it is clear to all that those who have once come into being cannot enter the womb of those who bore them. But as I quoted before, it was said through the prophet Isaiah how those who have sinned and repent shall escape from their sins. He said this, wash yourselves, be clean, take away wickedness from your souls, learn to do good. Give judgment for the orphan and defend the cause of the widow and come and let us reason together, says the Lord. And though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as wool. And though they be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. After these services, we constantly remind each other of these things. So that was a, a big part of it, the oral tradition of the early church, constantly reminding one another of the truths of the gospel. Those who have more... Come to the aid of those who lack, and we are constantly together. Over all that we receive, we bless the maker of all things through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And on the day called Sunday, there is a meeting in one place of those who live in cities or the country, and the memoirs of the apostles, I like that, or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So they will just open a document and read it aloud. 
When the reader has finished, the president in a discourse urges and invites us to the imitation of these noble things. That's that other imitation of Christ. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And as said before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is brought and wine and water. And the president similarly sends up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability. And the congregation assents, saying the amen. The distribution and reception of the consecrated elements by each one takes place, and they are sent to the absent by the de- sent to the absent by the deacon. So, communion was a hugely important part of life for the early church. In fact, it was the central act of worship on a Sunday. So, if someone couldn't be there because they were sick or injured or elderly, they would take the communion to them at their house just so that they could participate in being a part of that sacred activity. Those who prosper and who so wish contribute each one as much as he chooses to. So talking about their tithes. What is collected is deposited with the president and he takes care of orphans and widows and those who are in want on account of sickness or any other cause and those who are in bonds and the strangers who are sojourners among us. And briefly, he is the protector of all those in need. So those were the values of the early church, the imitation of Christ in charity in giving, always from a a place of joy, communion and baptism as sacred and necessary parts of the Christian life. Sadly, the church came under periods of great persecution. These are some of the most important persecutions that happened and notable persecutions. This here is Caravaggio's depiction of the crucifixion of St. Peter. They're crucifying him upside down in Rome, which is how he died. We had persecutions under the emperors Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius, and Decius. And of these emperors, those four in the middle, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus, and Marcus Aurelius, are are four of the five good emperors of Rome. Um, The Romans call them the good emperors because they were considered the wisest, most adept rulers ever to lead Rome, and yet some of the worst persecutions of Christians happened under their leadership. And part of the reason for that is that uh, the Christian faith was growing and spreading so quickly. By the year 250, there were 8 million Christians in the Roman Empire. That's how fast the faith, faith grew, under persecution, no less. And in some regions of the Roman Empire, Christianity was the dominant or majority faith in those regions, and it started to freak out the emperors. And in the name of uh, organization and orderliness and uh, reason, uh, they did not trust the emotional, spiritually driven, unpredictable nature of Christians. And in fact, Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic philosopher and all about logic and self-control, The one thing he mentions in his book, Meditations About Christians, is he calls them annoying because they're emotional. (laughs) And it gives you that idea that Marcus Aurelius is frustrated because these Christians just keep coming out of nowhere and he can't control them and they refuse to obey him. And it's frustrating. And so he responds by permitting the leaders in the provinces to to commit these very, very grievous and, um, and horrible and brutal Uh, persecutions and torture of of the Christian people in these regions. Even so, the church is continuing to grow and spread so quickly. And it's been a difficult thing for historians to explain. Now, in Christian tradition, we can explain that easily, right? It's the power of God. But historians are scratching their heads asking, well, how could a faith under persecution, sometimes violent, brutal persecution, be growing this quickly? And there's some interesting historical explanations for that. Um, I want to bring up something that I found recently, which is a list of epitaphs in Rome. There's a catacombs underneath Rome where there's just bones of people, both Christian martyrs and pagan people as well, who were tortured and executed during the time of the Roman Empire. And um, one thing we can do is draw a distinction between the gravestones of Christians and what was written on their epitaphs and the gravestones of pagan people. And it just gives you a little bit of a mindset into what it was like to live in Rome without any sense of hope. So over here, um, on the left, we have Christian epitaphs. Here lies Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Lawrence, to his sweetest son, born away of angels. 
victorious in peace and in Christ. Being called away, he went in peace. These are the epitaphs of pagans in Rome. Live for the present hour, since we are sure of nothing else. I lift my hands against the gods and took away, and who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. Once I was not, now I am not. I know nothing about it, and it is no concern of mine. Traveler, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. This is a um, quote from a Christian socio uh, sociologist of Christian studies. And um, his name is Rodney Stark. And uh, I don't believe that he is Christian. I'm not sure. Um, he operates in a secular world of academia. But this is his explanation for why the Christian faith was so attractive. And I think it really gets at this idea that um, there was something incredibly appealing about Christianity in the early days. And there would have had to have been because it was so risky to participate. Here's what he says. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Isn't that incredible? That is faith in practice, not just ideas in the mind. Actual transformation of entire civilizations. I want to bring this up before we start talking about theology because I find it both humbling and infuriating and hilarious and, um, and, and in its own way encouraging. But this is a, a cartoon that was given to me by a friend of mine who's a pastor and he teaches catechism classes. And he opens every catechism class with this cartoon. And up here you'll see um, 1 AD, okay, the year Jesus was born, and then every schism of faith that happens over a theology throughout time. And it says churches and Christian movements throughout history. And down here we have the teacher or the pastor, and he's got their denomination circled way at the end there. And he says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. Okay? And then a little kid in the back said, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Okay? Does this ring true? It does to me. We sometimes believe these theologies and these teachings that we hold with such firm, unyielding obstinance, and we believe so much that we're right, and our way of viewing scripture is right. But if you look up here, every movement in Christian history has felt the same way about what they were doing. So it's important, I'm not saying that Universal truth does not exist, that big T truth, it absolutely does. And there are central beliefs in the Christian faith that are so important. At the same time, there is always the possibility that something we're doing could be getting it wrong. And I think it's okay for us to entertain and move forward with hope and expectation that, that we're doing good, at the same time accepting that there are some things we might just not know or some things that other movements might be doing better than ours. And so this is the question that I want to pose to you, because we have had throughout history a tremendous amount of diversity in the church. But as we get to the end of the age of antiquity, and we start to see the rise of the universal church, as they called it, 
a state-sanctioned, unified, top-down, centralized church governing structure that controlled the theologies and told people what they needed to believe, what is the benefit to unity in belief and what is the drawback? Okay, that's the question. My next question, I'd like you to just shake it out a little and talk to the people next to you. What are the benefits of unity versus diversity and what are the drawbacks? I'll poll you guys in a second. Go ahead and discuss. Let's start with the benefit of unity. Let's start with the benefit of unity. Can anyone, did anyone talk about any benefits of unity? Feeling connected to others, yes. Pardon? Safety, absolutely. This is a really important point about the church under persecution is you have to know who you can trust and who you can't. Right? Because if your name gets on the wrong list somewhere or you talk to the wrong person about what you're doing, that means a Roman official could be in your town the next day hauling you off to prison. So you have to be sure who's on your team and who isn't. Right? Good point. Any, any other benefits of unity? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. One of the main motivators behind wanting a unified theological message was on how to train missionaries who were going to be going abroad and establishing churches elsewhere. That was a time when information traveled very, very slowly. So if you took the wrong message to say Ireland and established a church there, it might be several decades before the new, better message got there. So you had to be careful about how you were training your missionaries. Any other benefits to unity? Yeah. having those ideas constantly challenged. Um, any drawbacks of unity? Whoa, some hands going up over here. Beth, yeah. Yes, okay. If we have an insistence on unity, it can also instantly create this insider-outsider dynamic. People know where they fit if they, don't, if they don't fit within the correct sanctioned views of the church. Any other drawbacks of unity? You have to get the message from someone who's in power. And inherently, if we're going to have unity in the church, that information has to be controlled by someone at the top who's responsible for delivering that message down. And it does have a tendency of calling into question or devaluate the experience and revelation of everyday people within the church. Yes. everything you guys are bringing up here. We're going to go ahead with, with all of this in mind, and I think it's important for us, with any of these major movements in church history, something I always ask my students is, what is gained by this, and what is lost? Because anytime we have a major change in society, we're losing something, we're grieving the loss of something, and we're celebrating the gain of something else. So it's not always good or bad, right or wrong, but it's, it's, history is a convoluted, vast nuanced subject, and, and I think we can hold those things in tandem, the gain and loss of unity and diversity. But <clears throat> we could not have had unity of Christianity without this man, Constantine the Great, um, a, a statue of him. He's lifting his eyes to the sky. If you don't know the story of Constantine, the first Christian emperor, this man perhaps has had more um, important influence over the development of the Christian faith than anyone else in the ancient world. And that's because he was the man who brought Christianity out of a time of persecution and diversity and decentralized authority 
to a time of legality and state-sanctioned authority. Constantine was a young emperor who was squabbling over the throne in Rome. And uh, while he was going into battle to try to claim the throne of the Roman Empire, he saw a vision, and it was a cross emblazoned across the sky in fire. And God told him, you will win this battle, and I will make you victorious. And Constantine kind of cut a deal with the Almighty, the story goes, that if he was going to win this battle, he would convert to Christianity. This is a common conversion story of ancient kings and, and emperors. If you help me win this war, I'll convert, and then I will have everyone else convert as well. Um, and these stories are repeated again and again throughout the, the Middle Ages when pagan kings convert. And Constantine was the first example. And indeed, he won the battle. And in 312, he converted to Christianity. He became the emperor uh, over Rome, and he moved the capital of Rome to Constantinople, his new city um, founded in Istanbul. And uh, it used to be called Byzantium. And in 313, he issued what was called the Edict of Milan, a watershed moment in Christian history, because it was the moment that Christianity went from being illegal to legal. Now, contrary to public opinion, Constantine did not require everyone in the empire to convert to Christianity. That didn't happen until later, under an emperor named Theodosius I. Constantine just made Christianity legal, and he issued a formal order of religious tolerance within the empire. And uh, he was a Christian, but also a heretic, um, which is kind of funny because it's because of him that we have our first establishment of orthodox viewpoints in the church. But he did secretly sacrifice to the god of Mars throughout his life, um, in addition to believing in Jesus as well. So um, interesting guy, and constantly um, discussed figure in history. So this is my next question for you, and I want you to just use your imagination. We're going to talk about the historical realities. There was a lot gained by Christianity's legalization. We can imagine what that is. Suddenly, public discourse about the faith can happen. It doesn't have to happen in private and secrecy and underground meetings, but we can have actually sanctioned councils where people can come and discuss their ideas openly. We can have the church leaders talking about these things. People are no longer being tortured and suffering for the name of Jesus. There's much to be gained. And I think across the empire, this was seen as something to celebrate. But the question I want to ask you is, was anything lost? Or can you imagine anything that might have been lost by the legalization of Christianity and the conversion of Constantine? What could have been lost? Discuss together. OK, let's hear from maybe two of you. Anything, uh, anything lost? by the legalization of the faith. Yeah, Al. <laughs> yes, suddenly the conversation became very, very public and um, and there was a, a, dilution, a dilution that happened as well um, between um, people who were converting for very genuine reasons and people who were converting because it was now the politically correct thing to do, right? Now it's just socially good or normal or acceptable to go to church and be Christian, so let's all do it. It's the culturally accepted norm as opposed to being this passion-driven, um, grassroots movement. Any anything else lost? Can you guys think of anything? Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Yes. It's like when your parents tell you not to do any, not to go out with your friends, and you sneak out the window, right? Yeah, because you want it more, right? So um, it can lose its energy uh, and and zeal. I think it's. So that both, both of those things remain true for this. So um, I want to highlight some things historians talk about. Um, this is, a, this is a, a picture of Constantine. On his left, he has a sword, and on his right knee, he has a Bible. Okay, Just such a powerful image 
of um, power, right? The two things he needs, his sword, the Roman army, and God, and all of the authority of the Almighty. Okay? If we can think of the most powerful being in the world, that would have been Constantine at this time. So as mentioned under persecution, those who join the Christian way of life are usually genuine in their desire to participate. And this always happens when an emperor converts to a new faith, people convert in droves because they don't want to participate in the faith that the emperor does not endorse. It's too risky. And after Constantine, when new emperors come up and they have different ideas, everyone converts to those heresies too. Back and forth, this is what happens. Um, in France, when we see um, the kings of France uh, uh, convert to Christianity, everyone in France converts too, because they just don't want to oppose their leader. So it's really hard to distinguish who's doing this for genuine reasons and who's doing it because it's the cool thing to do. Um, additionally, there were real political benefits for people in the Roman Empire to then convert to Christianity as well. So if you knew Constantine was a Christian, and you were one of Constantine's advisors or underlings, you would want to convert because in the hopes that Constantine would favor you. And this doesn't mean that genuine conversion wasn't happening. Um, it just had a lot of different kind of conversions happening as well. Um, we also start a shift from this localized, decentralized church leadership stru structure to a central governing authority that was influenced by Greco-Roman values um, as opposed to um, Hebraic values. And the emperor had authority within the church, but as all emperors and kings do, his interests and goals were divided between preserving his own power, governing his people, and also seeking the kingdom of God. And sometimes those three things can't all happen at the same time without something being sacrificed. We're going back to our discussion of orthodoxy versus heresy. During this time, when Christianity became the realm of, entered the realm of public discourse, we see immediately the church fathers are not agreeing over certain beliefs. And they were specifically divided over the definitions of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, specifically the statements made by the Apostle Paul. And this is uh, something we don't talk about very often here, the study of Christology which is the study of Christ, particularly in regards to his nature, uh, bodily makeup, and the relationship with uh, or in the Father and the Holy Spirit. So we can all talk about the Trinity, and we think we know what that means, but someone who was raised as a scholar in Greco-Roman world would be very, very concerned with the exact definitions of those words. They're philosophers, they're scholars, and they want to know the details. And this is an example of the kind of argument that would emerge. Okay, one scholar comes forward and says, God is both fully man and fully God, or excuse me, Jesus is both fully divine and fully human at the same time. That came up earlier in our discussion. We as modern people might say, yeah, that's, that's what I believe, it's fine. But someone who's a scholar in this day would say, well, what do you mean? Is the right half of his body divine? Is the left half man? Is it more that there's two jar, uh, jars of marbles we have a jar of divine marbles and a jar of human marbles, and they were poured into the same vessel, or is his nature mysteriously commingled into his body? And these are the things that scholars would debate on, and they would yell and scream and fight with each other over the exact nature of the divinity and humanity of Christ. Now, I personally, I hope I don't sound like a heretic when I say this, don't really care if it was marbles or mysteriously commingled, or he had a divine arm and a human arm. He's just Jesus. He's God and man at the same time. Isn't it amazing? The exact details of that elude my brain. I choose to not get bogged down in that. But again, I'm not a third century Grecian scholar. This is the thing that would have divided the church and did. That leads us to the very first heresy. This is a guy named Arius. He was a priest in Alexandria. And he started teaching about the corporeal nature of Jesus in a way that other church leaders did not agree with. But it was much more easy 
for people to understand than the complex theologies that were being explained by people, uh, by scholars, and what we would call Pauline scholars, people that were very, very interested in Paul's interpretation in his epistles. And um, he challenged what was known then as homoousian theology. This is basically uh, talks about Jesus and God being of the same substance. And Arius said, Jesus is divine and so is God, but Jesus is human in substance and God is divine in substance or the Father is divine in substance. Okay, that was his distinction. When we actually look at Jesus, he's a physical being and he's still the son of God the Father's divine, Jesus is human, okay? And also divine, but his, his substance is human. And this was a very, very popular idea. And part of the reason why is because it's a little bit easier to understand for the everyday person. Um, Arius was adamant that this was the case, and he started preaching this throughout Alexandria, and it spread. And um, there were some church leaders who took his side and many, many who did not and thought that what he was preaching was very, very, very dangerous to um, emphasize the material or human aspects of Christ at the ex expense of the divinity of Christ. In order to settle this matter, which actually was a huge controversy, Constantine called the first ecumenical council meeting of the church. This was called the Council of Nicaea. It happened in 325. And he had invited them to his summer home, 220 bishops, to decide once and for all, is Arius right about this or is Arius wrong? And if Arius is wrong, should he be allowed to teach? The church, uh, they also wanted to decide the, what was called the Easter controversy. What day of the year should Easter be celebrated on? And this was something else that had everyone in the early church up in arms. There was very hostile opinions about what day Easter should be celebrated on. So they were going to decide once and for all, is Arius right or wrong, and when should we celebrate Easter? There's Nicaea. It's in uh, what we know now as modern-day Turkey, near Constantinople. And primarily, it's interesting, primarily the people that arrived to the Council of Nicaea were from the Eastern world. It took a long time to travel in those days, yeah. Later on, yes, mm -hmm. later on, that was decided at a, a council meeting as well, yeah. Um, but we had, uh, we had this meeting happening and a lot of people from the West couldn't attend because they were too far away. But we did have 220 bishops from the East attending and what they decided was a few things. One, they decided Arius was in fact wrong. And they used the meeting to decide what the church's stance was on the exact nature of Christ in terms of his divinity and human nature. Um, and they also decided when Easter would be celebrated. And uh, they also decided that the bishops of Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria would have special degree of influence within the church because these were churches that had been historically founded by apostles. And so they had special status. Um, if all of the bishops could not agree on doctrine, um, those four bishops from those areas would preside over the meeting and would have a little bit more influence over what would happen. But what was happening here at this meeting was a desire to create a certain amount of consensus between the leaders of the church. And what they were looking for was not a unanimous decision, but a strong majority decision on what people felt. And they used scriptures to guide them, and they used tradition, and they used the experience of the churches to come to a decision on the matter of the Arian controversy and the Easter controversy. Okay, here is the Council of Nicaea. We have someone up there reading the doctrines, we have people discussing, all the bishops. And then down here at the bottom, we have Constantine. And people, different people have debated what this image means. Some people think that that guy's explaining the doctrines to Constantine because he didn't maybe fully understand them. Um, other people believe that he's explaining something to the other guy. 
Whatever it is, Constantine did preside over that meeting. He did not make all the decisions, but he had a strong influence over this meeting because Constantine was very against the views of Arius. He was quite convinced that Arius was wrong. That's a depiction of the Trinity there. The Council of Nicaea leads to the adoption of what's called the Nicene Creed by Christians. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. Re rejects the position of Arius. The term homoousius of one substance is added when speaking of the Son of God. The Son is of the same substance as the Father. And Christ's divinity becomes the official stance of the Christian church. Um, the Nicene Creed, what is it? Well, it's a list of theological bullet points decided at Nicaea. It is still the most commonly used creed in Christian liturgy. Forms are used in Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, and many Protestant or Evangelical churches. So when people look at the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church and they think, oh, those aren't Christians, okay? According to the, the Nicene Creed and the basic fundamental statements of Orthodox doctrine, all of these churches believe the same things. And it established the first formalized list of beliefs upheld by a universal Christian church. This is a copy of the Nicene Creed in Greek. I'm not going to read it to you. And here it is in English. And if you recognize these doctrines as things that you believe, there's a reason for that. Now, the Vineyard Church doesn't use the Nicene Creed in worship, but actually our statement of faith is based on the statements of the Nicene Creed as well. There's just some history of our own movement there. Here it is. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten that is of the essence of the Father. It's really important that they establish that. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Who for us humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made human, was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. No, Joseph's DNA was not a part of it. By whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in man, truly and not in semblance. He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven with the same body, and sat at the right hand of the Father. He is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead. Of his kingdom there is no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, in the uncreated and the perfect, who spoke through the law, prophets, and gospels, who came down upon the Jordan, preached through the apostles, and lived in the saints. We believe also in only one universal apostolic and holy church, a unified church, in one baptism and repentance for the remission and forgiveness of sins, and in the resurrection of the dead, and the everlasting judgment of souls and bodies, and the kingdom of heaven, and in the everlasting life. Okay. So, according to history, every major branch of Christianity, their theology stems from this creed, which was from 325. We don't have time for this question, but I want you to think about it. There are many Christian faiths, evangelical churches and Protestant churches, that do not accept the Nicene Creed. And it's not necessarily that they disagree with the views, but they disagree with the idea of having a creed in general. So I want us to think about what are the benefits and the drawbacks of a creed. For me, I think the benefits of the creed are just the clarity, unity, and uh, the uh, the way that it can bring together people who are different in so many other ways. At the same time, there's a paradox there, because as soon as we have a bullet point of things a Christian is, anytime someone doesn't meet that list of bullet points, they're immediately cast to the outside. So with the first list of orthodox theologies, we also have the first excommunications and the first heretics. So the question becomes, is it good? Is it bad? Is it both at the same time? Which is it? 
I love this quote from Wayne Meeks, who's a Yale scholar. And so the very drive for unity produces schism. And quite ironically, the very existence of all the different schisms is testimony to the sense that there ought to be unity. In other words, because we want unity so badly, when we try to incorporate other people into our theological fold, if they can't assent to that, immediately, out of our desire to unity, for unity among each other, we push that person to the outside. So the more we want unity, the more schisms happen. Because people don't want to worship with people who aren't like them or who don't believe the same things that they do. It's a circle that happens. A few political implications in Nicaea, and then we'll close it up. Constantine wanted to align himself with the Nicene church. Um, but Arianism remained popular in other regions of the empire, particularly among Germanic people. And I love this picture. You can barely see it. It's a Frankish carving of Jesus. Um, and it looks like his hair is like all crazy. I think those are supposed to be rays of light coming out of his head. But the Germanic people had a very, very simple, uneducated view of Jesus. And sometimes for them, the most simple explanation was the easiest to understand. As soon as you try to introduce complex theologies to the Germanic people, they just put their hands up and rejected it entirely. So some missionaries out there were finding the things that connect with these people in the, in the most clear, easy way possible. And Germanic people didn't understand Nicene Christianity. It was too complicated for them, too academic. Um, I'm going to move ahead to this. Theodosius I, after Constantine was off the throne a few decades later, Constantine, or Theodosius I made Nicene Creed law, and anyone who did not believe it could be executed. So now Christians went from being persecuted to being the persecutors in the Roman Empire. And very sad, he banned the Olympic Games, and that lasted until 1896. Um, boop, boop. I'm going to push through some of this stuff. I just want to pull up last um, some modern connections. So these are churches that still use or are inspired by the Nicene Creed. You can see some that you may recognize on this list. It's a lot. Okay? Here are some churches that do not um, use the Nicene Creed that still identify themselves as Christian, um, though the Orthodox Church may not recognize them as Christian. Okay? And it has to do with certain um, doctrines. Now, some churches, again, don't use the creed, not because they don't believe the contents of the creed, but because they're against having a creed for, it, for, matter, for reasons discussed. Here's some questions I want you to consider. I don't have answers to all of these questions, but as faith and the history of Christianity truly is a conversation that's gone on for 2,000 years and the conversation has not been closed. Here are the questions. Today, is a Christian defined more by actions or the way of life or by correct opinions? Is faith our ideas and beliefs, our actions, or both? Can we be disciples of Christ without trying to emulate him and practice his teachings? How does the understanding of the Trinity and the substance of Jesus impact how we live out our faith? Should our understanding or lack of understanding about these complex theologies exclude us from participation? And should we exclude others on these grounds? Again, I don't have the answers to these questions, uh, but I do want to pose them because I think that they're important. The number one thing lost um, by the, the emergence of creeds in the faith is that we shifted from a time when faith was about practice and integration into our whole being to faith being a matter of what we agree to in our minds. I want to leave you with a scripture because I think it's important that we look to Jesus' own life. People often ask um, about the kingdom of God. Was it a political entity? Did it exist inside us? as believers. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. 
For in fact, the kingdom of God is entos himon, in your midst. So the kingdom of God is not a political entity, nor does it exist only in our minds, with our beliefs, but it exists among us and in the ministry of Christ. Lastly, this is a quote from Reverend Mark D. Roberts. Though God's reign embraces and, and transforms human hearts, it is not limited to some sort of interior experience. The kingdom of God impacts actions, thoughts, relationships, families, institutions, and governments. In the end, it will touch everything on earth when God's will is fully done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet this expansive kingdom has begun on earth in a most unexpected and unnoticed way, rather like a mustard seed in the ministry of Jesus. Thank you.